This podcast of the Model Health Show is presented to you by Sean Stevenson with Rare Gym Productions. For more information, visit the SeanStevensonModel.com. Welcome to the Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson here with my beautiful co-host and producer Jade Harrell. What's up, Jade? What's up, Sean? How you doing today? I am interstatic. What? Yeah. Interstatic. Mm-hmm. What is that? Energized, anesthetic. I like it. On top of the world. Interstatic. Interstatic. It had me perplexed for a moment mm-hmm. there. I thought it was like inner, but inner with an E. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Deep. You're so good. I know. So Thanks. good. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. As you can probably hear, my voice is a little bit different. I am recovering from a lost voice right mm-hmm. now, so it might be a, just a little bit sexier than normal. So please <laughs> forgive me. Uh, we've got an amazing show for you today. Amazing guest. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal guest. <laughs> Super exciting stuff. And, you know, today's conversation is really, for me, I want to focus on happiness. Yeah. You know, because I truly feel that your health is intimately connected to your happiness and your happiness is intimately connected to your health. That's right. These two have this kind of intrinsic relationship. Mm-hmm. And also, I truly feel that, you know, it deserves as much attention and kind of reps put into it as your exercise does. I love it, right? You know, because mm-hmm. it really does have a huge impact in your overall life and fulfillment and all mm-hmm. that good stuff. Because what's the point of having a body, period, <laughs> not just that you enjoy, <laughs> if you're not going to be happy mm-hmm. with it and to be mm-hmm. able to go through life and enjoying life. A lot of the stuff that we do, the end result that we want is happiness. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. how can we get there more effectively, more efficiently, faster? more frequently. And that's what mm-hmm. today's show is going to be Man, about. Man, just getting there is a big thing. Right. At all. <laughs> Plus some other bonus goodies. Okay. So we've got a world-class expert to actually talk about this stuff today. So, but first let's give a quick shout out to our show sponsor, onnit.com. Head over to <laughs> O-N-N-I-T forward slash model. Mm-hmm. That's M-O-D-E-L for 10% off all of your health and human performance supplements. You already know we're huge fans of the Hemp Force Protein, mm-hmm. the most bioavailable protein for the human body is going to be found in hemp. Very rich source of edestin and albumin, very soft globular protein, often found in egg whites, right? <laughs> While people guzzle egg whites, you know, and they're trying to get ripped up. Yeah. But who, why would you do that? Well, if you don't you, know. Why would you want to put yourself through eating some nasty egg whites? Have not been introduced to Choco Maca, obviously. Right, right. <laughs> when you can get it much more pleasurably and actually get something that's actually a little bit more bioavailable. And plus, a plant source is going to be, you know, it's just as you move down the food chain, it's going to be less toxicity, Mm -hmm. basically, you know. So organic is really, really important. You're going to find all that stuff in Hemp Force, and you don't got to suffer through guzzling egg whites. (laughs) All right, so Hemp Force Protein. Also check out the Earth Grown Nutrients. Is their green superfood blend. I feel that every single human being needs to be on some kind of a green superfood blend today. Mm-hmm. We're just faced with a lot of stuff. It's a little health insurance policy, and they've got a really, really great one. So head over to O-N-N-I-T forward slash model for 10% off. Now let's get into the iTunes review of the week. All right. This one is another five-star rating, which I absolutely love. And it says here, expanding my knowledge and my smile from T-Man1087. I have been on a wellness journey for nine years, and I thought I had learned so much. Sean is able to take that knowledge to the next level and with Jade's help, deliver it in a way that makes me smile. Don't just listen to it for yourself. Share it with those you care about. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that is really great. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. Wait, can you say the first sentence again? 
I have been on a wellness journey for it's nine no years. my knowledge and my smile. Yes, that what it that's was? the title. Yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. And what? how fitting is that it's for today when we're that's, talking about happiness? Yes. So thank Emoticani. you so much. <laughs> Insert emoji. <laughs> I love emojis, right? Yes. They might, it's oh like a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Yeah. You know, they when make you my discovered life so much those, it, I know, it's I went been hilarious. Crazy. So did yes. you. I did. I so followed did you. your lead. I couldn't talk to you without them after a while. <laughs> so thank you so much for leaving those reviews on mm-hmm. iTunes. I really do appreciate it. Now let's go ahead and get into our topic of the day and our special guest. Our guest today is Gretchen Rubin, and I'm actually going to read a little bit of her bio for you because it's awesome. She's an author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, which I have right here. Love this book. So good. And Happier at Home. Uh, she has an enormous readership, both print and online, and her books have sold more than two million copies. Two million, million. copies worldwide <laughs> in more than 30 languages. On her weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen, she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. And I love the podcast, by the way. Ruben started her career in law and was clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when she realized she wanted to be a writer. She lives in New York City with her husband and two daughters, which you get to learn about everybody in the book, Mm -hmm. uh, The Happiness Project. And I'd like to welcome to the Model Health Show, Gretchen Ruben. How are you doing today, Gretchen? I'm very happy to be talking to you. <laughs> awesome. So good to hear from you. So I'm assuming you're at home in New York right now, right? I am. I am. I'm in awesome. New York City. This is so funny because having the opportunity to read your book and kind of seeing your transformation firsthand and for the people out there who don't know about you and don't know about this great piece of work and how it's changed the game, I got to see you were not the person who was like super focus on happiness, right? It just wasn't like a big deal. You're just kind of going through the motions. How did you go from being a quote, normal person to having this project where you focused on happiness? Well, you know, the idea hit me in a very ordinary moment of my life. I was on a city bus in the pouring rain and I had one of those rare opportunities for reflection that you don't often get when you're running around in the sort of tumult of everyday life. And I thought, well, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. Mm. And I realized that I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier. And I thought, well, I should have a happiness project. And that was the phrase that I used in my mind. And it's very common for me to develop these little mini obsessions and go off and do a bunch of research. That's what I did. I went to the library, got a giant stack of books about happiness and started reading them. But before long, I realized that it wasn't just a subject that I wanted to do kind of on my own for fun, but that it was so rich and so vast that I thought, wow, maybe my happiness project could be my next book. Because at that point, I was just finishing up my biography of Kennedy. And indeed, I decided this would make a great book because there was just so much I wanted to learn about and try that I felt like it was big enough to sustain a book's length of interest. Right. And what's so fascinating about the project is that you had a very, I'll say, analytical approach to happiness. And I'm sure you discovered a lot of great things that you've been able to share with, again, millions of people at this point. But can we go ahead and get into some of those things? Like you broke it into 12 chunks, 12 months in this project. And I felt like the first chunk was like incredibly uh, powerful, you know. And by the way, I just want to share really quickly. Recently, I cleaned out my closet. right? Right. Right before I actually read your book or found out about your work. And that feeling, because I just 
I didn't care. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, I'm a guy. It's whatever. It's just some clothes in there. But just getting that stuff out of there just opened up so much space in my spirit, I felt. You know, so yeah. can you take us through and share some of the stuff that you found in your research? Well, one of the things that you're pointing to, it's this thing that has surprised me for years, which is the kind of disproportionate boost that you get from clearing out clutter because it doesn't really make sense. I mean, we right. can all agree that in the context of a happy, healthy, productive life, something like a crowded coat closet or an overflowing in basket is trivial. And yet over and over, people say just what you said. And I certainly feel this way myself, which is that there's something about getting control over the stuff of life that makes you feel more in control of your life generally. And if it's an illusion, it's a helpful illusion. And, you know, when I was talking to people for my new book, Better Than Before, about habits and about happiness, the one habit that people most often specifically mention is something that makes them happier. And it's not the most significant thing you can do, but it seems to be something that a lot of people successfully do try is to make your bed. There's something about that little bit of order, just like cleaning out your closet. There's something about that little bit of order that makes people feel more energized, more in command of themselves. They feel like they do a better job with their eating and their exercise. It's, there's just some weird connection. Yeah. It's not clear to me why these things are, they don't seem like they should be, but they are. But when I started the Happiness Project, the first area I focused in, I think is extremely relevant to you and your listeners, which is I started on the idea of energy. And when I was looking at habits also, I realized like the idea of, of the body is so important because our physical experience always colors our emotional experience. And if you have energy, everything's going to be easier for you. Any kind of habit that you're trying to form, any kind of behavior you're trying to shape is going to be easier for you when you have energy. Because a lot of times there's right. things that we know would make us happier. Like, yeah. I'd be happier if I planned that party. I'd be happier if I went to that gathering. I'd be happier if I got up early and went for a bike ride. Right. And yet we don't do it because we're just like, oh, I'm so tired. It just, I feel overwhelmed. I can't face it. But if you have that energy, then you can get yourself to follow through with these things that have a lot of bang for the buck. So some of the things I talk about are the, such the obvious things, like getting enough sleep. Most adults yeah. need at least seven hours of sleep, getting a little bit of exercise. You know, maybe one person's training for the marathon. Maybe you're walking around the block a few times, but just like get up and get moving. One thing that I loved that I wrote about in Happier at Home is to cultivate good smells. This is mm. a delightful way to boost your happiness because it doesn't take any time or energy or money. You don't have to count the carbs or the calories. You just walk across the kitchen and smell the grapefruit or, you, you know, you walk into a hardware store and smell that great hardware store smell and it just gives you that quick lift and it also connects you to your body. And I don't know about you, but people will often say to me, like, I'm too, I'm like constantly behind a computer screen. I'm like, I want to connect more to now. I want to feel more present. And there's something about the sense of smell that it really connects you to what's happening to you right now through your body. Right. And so it has very special power and it really gives you a lift and it's just easy and fast. It's just a quick fix. Yeah. So what you're talking about, this is the olfactory sense, yes. right? You know, the yes. sense of smell is very, very powerful. You know, we yes. oftentimes think of, you know, dogs or something having this super yes. sense of smell, but we can smell really well. It's just, we have this really interesting thing that our bodies adapt really quickly to smells, yes. you know? So this is kind of gross, but you know, if you walk into maybe a public bathroom, you know, especially guys, and it's like, oh, that doesn't smell pleasant, right? But the smell kind of just goes away after, you know, a minute or so, like you, you just kind of get used to it. So changing smells can really change your state, you yes. know, like you just said, and it's super powerful stuff and it's healing as well. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think to your point about how you can't perceive a scent after a certain amount of time is another reason that it connects you to the present because you can't keep smelling that bush of lilacs for a half an hour. You're only going to smell it for a little bit of a time and then it's going to fade away because of exactly what you're saying about how our sense perception works. So it's something that like you have to experience it right now. And that's the only way you can experience it. You can't bookmark it. You can't yeah. save it for later. You can't extend it. It's just yeah. something that's happening to you right now. Yeah. You brought up so many great points and especially about sleep. You know, my audience definitely knows a lot about that. Yeah. You know, having a best-selling book on the topic and, and just seeing how people really are interested in this topic today because they're seeing that this is usually a big hole in our game as far as our health right. and also our performance, but also your happiness. And I often yes. tell people... When you're tired, your best friend can look like your worst enemy, yes. right? Yep. It's just like That's- everything becomes more annoying and you're yes. just like, oh, yes. would you just please, you know, because it's harder. It's a physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually more difficult to cultivate that happiness, you know, but we still have the capacity to turn it on, but it's just more difficult to maintain it. And an interesting thing about sleep deprivation is that we adjust to it. And so people right. will say to you yes. like, oh, I've trained myself to get by in four hours. I'm totally fine. But when scientists study those people, they realize they're actually quite impaired. Right. Like you say, it, it affects your mood, your memory, your immune function. They think it contributes to weight gain. Most adults need seven hours of sleep. And, right. you know, you sort of need to figure it out. I think a lot of adults are sort of like, well, I'll just go to sleep when I'm tired. But then they do things at the very end of the right. night, like check their work email or like turn on Game of Thrones, you yeah, know. That's and Khaleesi. Then, yeah, and then you're like, whoa, I'm not tired at all. You know, you get the second wind, but that's right. dangerous. It's like go to bed in the first wind. Yes. Um, don't wake, you know, because you can jack yourself up, you know, but the next day you pay for it. Exactly like that's you right. say, everything bugs you. It's hard to make decisions. It's hard to concentrate. Everything feels difficult. So, but getting that sleep is really crucial. Yeah, I've seen this so many times. And then, you know, somebody does say, well, I've trained myself to, you know, get four hours of sleep. That's all I need. No. Cut to, you know, you see the before and after picture. They're actually a skeleton talking and saying that, you know, like, <laughs> I only need four. They don't even realize that they're just a shell of themselves anymore. You well, know? and one of the things that I write about in Better Than Before, which is all about habits, because I think a lot of times people, they know they'd be happier if they got more sleep. It's not like right. they haven't figured that out, but they're not able to sort of follow through on the habit of getting more sleep. Right. And so one of the things people can do is use the strategy of monitoring, which is because I have 21 strategies for habit change that people can use. The the strategy of monitoring is that we tend to do a better job with just about any behavior that we're trying to shape if we just pay attention to how often we do it. And so I got one of those trackers and I thought, well, I don't really need to track my sleep because I'm the sleep zealot. But it turned out I wasn't really getting as much sleep as I thought because I remembered the time when I went to bed early and I forgot about the times I went to bed late. And so using a sleep tracker to actually monitor how much sleep I was getting helped me remember like, oh, come on, turn out the light. Another strategy that helps my sister, you mentioned my podcast on the podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. My sister talked about how she started setting an alarm, a bedtime alarm that goes off at her bedtime to remind her to start going to bed because she sort of needed something to be like, okay, it's bedtime because otherwise she would just stay up, stay up, stay up and then regret it in the morning. Yes. We could obviously (laughs) do a whole show about this part. Um, One of the just last quick thing is that you mentioned this second wind, this energy second wind. This is actually an enzymatic process that happens for all of us. If we're lined up with nature, you know, our hormones are actually shifting when the sun goes down, right? And then our body also has this kind of enzymatic activity it turns on for the purpose of repairing you while you're asleep. 
But if we just kind of, you know, like you said, click on Game of Thrones, start looking around on Facebook, we start getting these dopamine hits. And yep. it's a whole different channel than what we want with serotonin and uh, the conversion to melatonin. You know, so what ends up happening is we're all of a sudden we're wired. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm not sleepy anymore. And yeah. so like having an alarm, like you just said, and we just heard an alarm in the background. Right. You know, <laughs> having an alarm, because I do that for just small things during the day. And I even encourage my clients that have trouble drinking mm -hmm. water or quote, remembering to drink water yep. just to set a water alarm. And there's also apps for that. You yep. know, so I love those tips. That's really great. Well, it's interesting that we talk about an alarm. And so when we heard the siren, it brought a mindfulness about our right now, mm. about where we were, where our presence was yeah. in the planet and in space and time. But then, you know, we're relying on these devices and other things to help us remember. But, you know, there's built in things in the universe like the sun setting. And right. we talked about that. There are these kinds yeah. of alarms like, hey, I need to go on and start toning down and settling down into my evening routine so and all those other things. But you know, so, these silly humans. Well, you know, we yeah. Just do what we yeah, want we to. are. But I just love that we're getting more into being mindful about where we are in yeah. the time and space of things. And one thing, there really are also morning people and night people. Um, not every, people don't experience time the same way. And most people are somewhere in the middle, but there really are morning people and night people. And if you really are a very morning person or night person, it's something to deal with with your happiness because it can be a challenge because like night people, they're really expected to get going in the morning well before they really are on their game. There's a fascinating book called Internal Time by Till Ronenberg that I really recommend to anybody who is kind of struggling with this issue in their own life, like, is this a real thing? Because I used to always tell night people, well, all you have to do is go to bed earlier mm -hmm. and wake up earlier and you can train yourself. No, it turns out this is genetically hardwired. And people, when they're teenagers, tend to be more night people. And then as we get older, we generally become more morning people. But there's a lot of variation between. So that's Internal Time is a really fascinating book so on cool. that for people who maybe feel like that's a special issue for them. Nice. Well, bringing up the genetics, that's a really interesting segue because... You know, I saw these statistics many, many times before, but you also cited them in your book, The Happiness Project. And it basically shows that, according to the research, our level of happiness is about 50% genetic, right? Yes. So life circumstances, so 50% genetic happiness. So, so already that's going to sound weird to people, like my happiness is determined by my genetics. <laughs> weird, all right. So the next up, we've got life circumstances, such as age, gender, ethnicity, Marital status, income, health, and occupation account for about 10 to 20%. And then the rest of that is a product of how a person thinks and acts. And basically, in other words, it's all about our perspective. And this is where I kind of want to move the conversation to again, which is, first of all, what does that data mean to you? Why did you put that in the book? Well, you know, and I think it's it's something that you know from just being around that some people are just naturally kind of more Tiggerish, if you remember right. Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> and some are naturally more Eeyore-ish. Like that, some people kind of they're. Na I think everybody's got a natural range, and maybe your natural range is like four to seven, or maybe your natural range is like seven to ten. You know, that's just sort of who you are now. But other things, your life circumstances and your conscious actions and thoughts are going to either push you down to the bottom of your natural range or help you know, lift you up to the top of your natural range. So I think that's how to think about it. You're not going to change your inborn nature. And we don't, you see that in little kids, like, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Like you kind of come out a certain way, but there's definitely <laughs> a lot that we can do within our power. And often with life circumstances, clearly our conscious thoughts and actions, you know, contribute to our life circumstances. I mean, a person who makes certain decisions for the first 30 or 40 years of their life is going to be in a very different health situation, for instance, as a 60 year old. So there's an interplay between those. But I think it's important, though, to think 
well, what is within my conscious control? Like, what can I do? You know, I focus on the low-hanging fruit. What's the stuff that I can easily do with not a lot of time, energy, or money? What appeals to me that can make me happier, healthier, and more productive? What are the things that I can do? And I never talk about thoughts, really, like trying to be more optimistic or something like that, because I find that, like, very abstract and hard. Like, how do I affect my thoughts? It seems too intangible to me. So I'm very focused on like, what do you actually do? Like, what can you see yourself doing in the world? But as it turns out, the way that we act has a huge influence on the way that we feel. And so if you control your actions, then you're going to have a big, big impact on your mm. emotional state. Yeah, That brings up a question then for me, because when we look at some of our life circumstances where we'll make choices that we think make us happy, but those actions actually create situations or outcomes that in the end, don't make us happy? Should we maybe address some of the baseline understanding of what is happiness to each of us and how we determine, is this what makes me happy or is this is what's comforting my symptoms right now? Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because there's a, what it's called, hedonic forecasting is the scientific term for that, which is how are you able to predict now what's going to make you happy in the future? Well, it'll come as no surprise to anybody that human beings are not that good at hedonic forecasting. We often will do things in the present, like get a tattoo or go to law school, um, that end up not making us feel so happy in the future. But you're right. It's a very, very important thing to address. And I also think it's very important to think about to constant, you know, sometimes people act as though with the happiness project, I'm arguing that people should never feel like the, the goal of life is to never experience negative emotions. And that is not true. A life without negative emotions would not be possible. And it wouldn't <laughs> even be a good life. You know, we, we it's natural and appropriate that we would have negative emotions. But I think you're right, like people who feel regret, or remorse, or guilt, or boredom, or anger, or resentment, like these are important cues that whatever our situation is, it's not working for us. Maybe we took a job thinking this is the job that's going to make us happy, but if we spend our whole day envying other people, feeling bored, feeling angry, feeling resentful, feeling insecure, like, you know, just like a lot of bad feelings, that's a really important clue to us. This is not working. These negative emotions are meant to help you figure out that it's time to change. Just like physical pain is meant to help you get your body to a safer place, right. these negative emotions are very helpful in making you realize like, okay, there's something that needs to be worked on here. And so as unpleasant it is sometimes to think about something like envy, it can be a really important guidepost to the fact that it's time for a change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because, you know, it's really, we've got this built-in inner guidance system that we're yes. often just kind of not paying attention to. Yes. And the issue really is when people live there, you know, instead of having the audacity to feel the feeling, to notice the feeling, and then to ask questions, you know, and our brains are really hardwired to answer questions, you know, so what is it that this feeling of guilt is trying to tell me, yes. you know, like what lesson is this sadness trying to teach me in my mm. life? You know, what I need to learn from this? So well, yeah, and it's this idea of mindfulness that you mentioned before. It's like it's all about just like noticing what's happening to you. Like how are you even connecting to how you're feeling, what you're doing? It's so easy just to kind of drift along with your – I mean, and I'm the worst of this. Like I'm the least mindful person. I know I have to work on this constantly. But you're exactly right to point to it as this key aspect because that's what you need to know where you are and what's happening to you if you're going to point yourself in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Right, because this is not about – and for people who are tuning in the beginning, like, oh, happiness, blah, humbug, you know, <laughs> it's not about just, again, trying to live this life of super happiness all the time, because mm -hmm. I think it's really valuable to also understand contrast. You know, when we go through something arduous or something really negative, 
it really helps us to appreciate the great times, you know, it's just built into the system, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, again, not about battling negative emotions. They're all there. It's a wonderful gift. It's a, just about not letting them control you and own you and understand that we are probably going to be more productive and healthy if we can have happiness on speed dial, you know, <laughs> right. essentially. And that you can tune it in on demand. Right. <laughs> well, and it's interesting that because as you say, like happiness has a surprisingly bad reputation and some people really dismiss happiness as being like people who worry about their happiness are just self-indulgent or selfish. But in fact, research shows, and I, I mean, and I think this is something you see in everyday life, that happier people are actually more interested in the problems of the world and more interested in the right. problems of the people yes. around them. They're more altruistic. They give away more money. They volunteer more time. They're more likely to help out if a family member or a friend or a colleague needs a hand. They make better team members and better leaders. They have healthier habits, so their health is better. When we're happy, we have the emotional wherewithal to turn outward and to think about other people and about the problems of the world. And when we're less happy, we tend to become isolated, defensive, preoccupied with our own problems, and we also find it more difficult to manage ourselves. And so if you're unhappy and you're trying to eat better or exercise more or go to bed on time, you're going to find that more difficult because you don't have that inner resource that's going to make it easier for you to ask more of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And for everybody, you know, there's a little bit of a variance here in my perspective about this and, you know, just kind of understanding and being first introduced to this by Dr. Bruce Lipton, the understanding of epigenetics, you know, and understanding that even our genetic template can be shifted, especially mm -hmm. by our conditions. You know, they really help to change because the reality is humans share like basically the same 25,000 genes. There's not that much. You know, fruit flies have more genetic variation than we do, right? It's so interesting. So we've got genetic cards in there, you know, they're just not as many for a lot of different things. And it's really going to depend on, you know, what we do in our life. And so I really personally feel that our perspective and our conditions and the things that we uh, help to cultivate in our own lives mm -hmm. really do change a lot. And so can we shift back? And I want to share with everybody a few more things about what you discovered in your happiness project. And first thing I want to know, like, what did you discover that really like shocked you? about happiness, you know, like oh. something that you could do that can change your happiness. Well, so when I started the research and, you know, when you start looking at the research, one thing that you find over and over again is this conclusion that novelty and challenge bring happiness, that people are happier when they do new things, even something as basic as like going to a new restaurant. So and that challenge makes people happier. But I have to say, you know, everything in the book, I tested out on myself to see if I found it to be true. And I thought, you know what, maybe that's true for most people, but I don't think that's true for me because I'm the kind of person who likes familiarity and mastery. I eat the same food every day. I rarely leave my neighborhood. I like to read and write, and that's just about it. So I thought, well, maybe that's true for a lot of people, but it's not going to be true for me. But because of the nature of the book, which was that I kind of my own guinea pig, I had to test it. And so to try to do something novel and challenging, I thought, well, I'll start a blog because at that point, like I was completely untechy. I never read blogs. I never wrote short. I always wrote books. So I had no kind of experience writing short pieces regularly. Everything about it felt challenging and difficult and unfamiliar. So I was like, okay, well, this will be a good test. Cause was it uncomfortable? It was extremely uncomfortable. Uh. Oh my gosh. Yes. But the thing I kept reminding myself was it doesn't matter if it's bad because no one will see it. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, 
it turned out, of course, Novelty and Challenge made me so happy. I still remember the ecstasy I felt the first time I managed to post an image onto my <laughs> website. You know, which now to me seems so basic, but at the time was like a huge right. accomplishment. And it got me like all these new skills. It changed my identity as a writer. It gave me a whole new identity in the world. I, now I was a blogger as well as a traditional writer. It connected me to my readers, which was super exciting. It led to all different kinds of things. And so, I mean, I've had GretchenRubin.com going for like eight, more than eight years now. I post almost every day. So that was something that really surprised me because I went in thinking like, I know myself. I know my own mind. I know what makes me happy. And I did a complete 180. And now I truly am convinced. Novelty and Challenge, they make us feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. like you say right you feel insecure you feel frustrated you feel dumb you feel annoyed you feel vulnerable but then if you can push through that oh my gosh it's so mm -hmm. great and you mentioned that I, I have this podcast with my sister happier with Gretchen movement and when we started it I was like you know what I was like let's just remind ourselves it's going to be really kind of unsettling at the beginning we're not going to know what we're doing we're going to feel anxious, but I bet if we will stick with it, we will love it. And we just have to remember that you have to push through that level of discomfort at the beginning of novelty and challenge, um, especially if you're not so much of a, you know, a risk lover, which I am not, um, <laughs> to get to the other side where you're really going to find that sense of accomplishment and satisfaction and all the new experiences and relationships that can flow when you do something novel and challenging. What would you say is key to leaning into that discomfort and pressing through that challenge? What is it that helps somebody who's not used to it, who right. maybe retreats when it gets uncomfortable? What is key to that? That is such a good question. And I think there's a very fine line and there's sort of no test for this except because you just have to know yourself. I do believe that it's not that every challenge is for every person. Like going bungee jumping off a bridge would not be the right challenge for me. It me might be either. the right challenge. Yeah, it might be the challenge for someone else. And so I think you do have to think, what is true for me? What is the right kind of challenge for me? What can I ask of myself? And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, take something like public speaking, which is like, I think apparently Americans are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. It's a thing that many, many people feel very anxious about. Now, for some people, it's just like, it's not in the cards. It simply is not in the cards for them. But for, I think, many people, maybe most people, it's like, you know what? This is something that you can ask of yourself. If you prepare, if you start small, if you think about how to make this possible for you, this is a challenge that you can tackle and feel good about. But I think each one, people often say, like, but how do I know if this is a good challenge for me or if it's outside my nature? I think you have to have a challenge that's right for you. And it's like, there's no test. You have to look within yourself. But I think most of us know, like, something's just like, that's not me. You know, like backpacking through the Himalayas by myself. That is not me. Might be you. It's not me. It's not my challenge. It's not the right challenge for me. But for someone else, it would be the right challenge. And I think if we look within ourselves, we have a, a North Star that can tell us. Right. And that's such a great question and answer. We just did a show recently and kind of went through some of the things that really helped to cultivate a really powerful person, you know, just somebody who's really being the best version of themselves. And part of that is understanding, you know, nobody starts off good at anything. That's you know? right. And that's I think that that's one of the barriers of entry. That's one of the barriers of entry for people to do something more novel and experiment and do something is also just like, you know, I'm going to suck when I try this, you know, and that's part of it. You know, yes, you're going to suck, but that's OK. You're going to get better if you and it's just giving yourself the opportunity to see if you like it or not. You but know? also when you look at people around you who are succeeding, often you ignore the parts where they were failing. Like people are always like, well, but your first book was such a success. And I'm like, no, that was my fifth book. 
Right, I've written yeah. four other books you've never heard of. So, you know, it's like I've been a writer for 10 years yeah. before I had a book that was a success. So don't discount that. Like when you just see somebody like, you have an amazing body. It's like, yeah, well, I didn't have an amazing body five years ago, you know, or whatever. I think it's yeah. easy to look at the people around you and forget that just like you have to work towards goals, they've been working towards their goals too. And so sometimes it looks like you're the only one struggling and everybody else has kind of got this locked in because it's easy to overlook you know, sometimes the path that it takes to get you where you want to go. Right. There's a wonderful quote, and I'm just going to paraphrase. It's essentially, try not to compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20. Nice. I like that. You know, because that that comparison, again, it really puts us in bondage, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of focusing on what you can do and also allowing yourself to enjoy something Mm -hmm. and understanding the benefit with your happiness meter by just you experimenting and trying something new. And achieving it for yourself because nothing is wasted. You know, even if your chapter one or your previous three books happened and they weren't yes. uh, your resounding success, it's still not wasted. Yes. It's right. what makes that success complete, you know. Yes. No, my father always says, enjoy the process. And that's such an important thing to remember because if you enjoy the process, then the outcome doesn't matter as much. Like, of course, it's nice to have a success. Of course, it's nice to learn to do something well. But if you you can enjoy the process, it's not a bitter defeat if things don't work out. You're like, well, I tried to learn French and I never really, like my accent is still terrible and I'm really not that good in French, but I'm kind of good in French. I'm better than I was before. Like I can talk to a waiter. You know, it's like if you enjoy the process, if you finally like cross some magical finish line, it doesn't matter as much. So I think you're right. Awesome. So another thing in the book, The Happiness Project, one of your experiments, the culmination of that was basically to be serious about play. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, I'm one of these people, and it's funny because when I was writing the Habits book, now I understand my habit nature much better. And I'm one of these people where if I want something to happen, I really need to put it on the calendar, you know, which in my habit strategies is called the strategy of scheduling. Like if something's important to you, put it on the schedule. Like I have things like kiss my husband in the morning and kiss my husband at night because as silly as that sounds, like Mm -mm. that's how I know I'm going to get it done. That's the truth. And (laughs) and with play, I'm like, I schedule time to goof off. Like I'll put it on my calendar on the weekend, like free time. And every night, one of my habits that I did for better than before is now I give myself a quitting time every night. Because you know how for a lot of us, there's really no clear boundary between work and leisure. And so you feel like you're kind of never really working, but then never really not working. And it's an uncomfortable, bad feeling. And so now, and it's a different time every night because my schedule is so different. But I say like now, this is I look at my day and I'm like okay this is quitting time and after quitting time I read for fun I don't read for work I don't check my emails I don't feel any obligation to do anything except just like and I don't do household chores either I'm just goofing off because I think sometimes with something like play or also something like friendship we think oh well this is great this is like part of the sweet part of life it should be spontaneous it should it will come naturally but maybe it doesn't. Maybe you got to schedule time to see your friends. Maybe you need to schedule time for play because if it's getting pushed out, your life is going to be the poorer for it. And so if you schedule time for it, then you can make sure to preserve a haven for the things that are most important for you. Yeah, I love, love that. It, love it. We also, again, recently talked about when I did a talk at Paleo FX recently, one of oh, the yeah. big components on productivity was really about play. Right? Yes. So it's understanding our hunter-gatherer ancestors and the indigenous cultures that we look at today, they work about 14 hours a week, right? Yeah, and the rest, right. And the rest of the time is spent in leisure. And they don't even have across the board a word for work as this like arduous toil, you know, this thing that you have to do, except when it comes to talking about us, 
right? Mm -hmm. Look at those, you know, silly, you know, working. evolved, right? <laughs> just working and really breaking their back. And it's just really understanding that play and just allowing yourself to have fun and to let go and to, to do what comes natural to us. And I want to kind of shift the conversation to this and see what your thoughts are as well. But I think we're really conditioned to get away from that. You know, mm -hmm. when we're a child and before we hit school, like it's full on play. Right. Like my little son, he doesn't just go to the room to get something. He runs and bounces like he's a little real life tigger. You know, he's three years old and he runs back and he th throws himself into something, you know, and it's just like full out play. But when we start to get into traditional school, which are really designed for making factory workers, mm -hmm, basically, mm -hmm. you know, this the system is, it hasn't really changed much. We're confined to a room and we're confined to desk for most of the day. And we're like told to sit down. And that playful nature eventually kind of pushes itself out to like, I'm just too cool. I'm too cool to play. You know, once we get to, I remember my first day of seventh grade when I went from elementary to middle school. And so, and I didn't really know what was going on that much. You know, I had my summer, I was away from everybody and I came back. And so it was like the middle of the day. I'm like, so when do we get recess? You know, and they're just kind of <laughs> laughing. Like <laughs> there's no recess, you know, like this is middle school. Like we don't have recess anymore. Right. That's and so like we gradually just through that kind of conditioning, get away from play. And this is another reason I feel sports are so popular. You know, it gives us, I guess, the right, you know, like now you have mm -hmm. the right to go and play. Mm -hmm. And so and permission to enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> permission. That's the perfect word. So here's a question, though, that I think I think a lot. Of, I think you're totally right, but that a lot of adults don't really know what they want to do for play. Right. And yeah. so, Mike, what I suggest is. What did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? Because what you did for fun when you were 10 is probably you would enjoy a version of that as an adult. Like if yes. you like to walk through the park with your dog, if you like to bike ride, if you like to make arts and crafts, if you like to like make Rice Krispie treats in the kitchen. When I was 10 years old, I would copy out my favorite passages from books into a blank book and then I would paste in an image that I would cut out of a magazine to illustrate it, which is exactly what I do on my blog now, which is to like <laughs> take my favorite quotations, yeah. comment on them, and put an image with them. It's exactly what I do now as an adult, and I get the same pleasure from it. But I think you're right that a lot of adults kind of have lost touch with that. Yeah. And so sometimes by thinking back on what you did in the past, you know, did you go ice skating? Did you go fish? And so many people I've talked to, they're like, oh, I completely forgot. Like, I used to spend hours fishing. It's like, yeah. Why don't you do that now? You could totally do that now. Right. They're like, okay, I will. You know, and then it is just as fun. You're the same person. So make room for your life for those moments of play. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm right in the same boat with you. Funny enough, I remember in elementary school and middle school, I loved to write. And yeah, I there you go. See? My eighth grade teacher putting my poem in the school newspaper. And it just like... It, and then it gave me that validation as well. So it just like permanently, like I love to write like forever. <laughs> it just became a part of me and also reading. Like I loved mm -hmm. reading. I love those choose your adventure books, you know? And so we kind of, over time, we, I lost track of that, but it circled back around and I'm very, I'm, I'm one of the fortunate people, but I think that we create our own fortune. It's just like you just said, what a great and wonderful tip and strategy is think back to when you're 10. That's great. What did you like to do? Mm -hmm. Go do that. Rediscover. You know? So wonderful stuff. One other quick thing that I'd like you to talk about was, and this is so contradictory to what a lot of people think, it's because it's like money can't buy happiness. We're like, well, it can, sort of. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that in the book when you said buy some happiness? Well, you're right. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy many things that contribute mightily to happiness. So it's about making wise choices. Buying a dog might make you happy. Buying a lot of 
cocaine probably in the end isn't going to make you very happy. <laughs> and one of the things that's notable about money Unless is Unless you're Rick it, James, though. Yeah, that you, um, it's more of a negative. When you don't have enough money, it's a huge drag on your happiness. And it's like health in that way. And then once you have a certain amount, then it ceases to be such an issue. So it counts more in the negative than in the positive. And of course, one of the most wonderful luxuries that money can buy is not having to worry about money. Yes, um, yes. Feeling secure, feeling safe, feeling like you have enough is an enormous benefit of having money and definitely something worth spending money toward. Are you saving for college? Are you saving for re retirement? So you have that feeling of like, okay, I'm doing what I need to be doing. But so, in, you know, and then there's all the things that we know about happiness, for instance, that relationships make people happier. So if you're thinking, well, should I, how should I spend my time, my energy, my money? It's like, well, Having a party is probably going to make you happier. Spending the money to buy a ticket to go to that wedding where you're going to see all your old friends, that's probably going to make you happier. Going to a reunion, that's the kind of thing that's going to have a big happiness payoff. Just buying like another jean jacket, if you've already got four, <laughs> it's not going to make much difference. You're going to get used to it. Yeah. You're hardly going to notice it. So it's about using money. You know, and you say something like fancy kitchen knives. Well, somebody might buy fancy kitchen knives just to have them on the counter as sort of like just to make themselves look cool. Well, that's not going to do anything for their happiness. But somebody who cooks every day who is really going to be like, oh my gosh, these knives, they're amazing. They make cooking so much easier. Like, I feel like, you know, good tools are so satisfying. Yeah. For them, that spending that same amount of money might have a huge happiness boost. For somebody else, it would make absolutely no difference. So again, it's like, well, what's true for you? Are you right. going to, how are you going to use this? How's it going to change your experience of your life? Yes, yes. Wow, I can attest to that knife thing, actually. Mm -hmm, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. When I was at my friend Aubrey Marcus's place in Sedona, and he had some fantastic knives. And for some reason, I kept ending up in the kitchen making food for people. <laughs> but it's not my house, you know? <laughs> but just using those knives, like, wow, this is wonderful. It makes everything so much easier. And it really kind of wow. hit that heartstring, like, I've got to get some good knives, mm -hmm. you know, because it made me happy, yep. you know? But what you're really speaking to is the fact that we talked before about uncertainty, and that kind of novelty and variety and how that hits a, a trigger point for happiness, but also certainty, you know, the uh, balance for that, you know, so meeting that certainty need through accumulating and, and kind of um, taking care of our financial fitness, you know, right. so having that good balance there as well is really right. going to do a number for your happiness because it frees up mental space for sure. Thanks right. for bringing that up. So valid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I so appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So can you let yeah. everybody know where they can get more information about you? Absolutely. On GretchenRubin.com, I write every day about my adventures and happiness and good habits. And there's tons of resources there if you want to uh, have a discussion guide or you want different resources about how to make yourself happier or how to change your habits for the better. And of course, having good habits is something that makes a lot of people happier. So those two things are intimately interconnected. I have my new podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which is on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else. And I have my books, The Happiness Project, which we've been talking about. And my new book, Better Than Before, is all about how to build the habits that are going to make us happier, how to actually follow through with those habits that you know are going to make you happier. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and all that stuff too. So I love to hear from readers and to engage with people on these subjects. So I'm so pleased to have gotten to talk to you. I feel like we could talk all afternoon. Yes. It's so fascinating. Well, and talking I, to you has made us happy. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Terrific. Well, thank awesome. you so much. Awesome. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the show and Gretchen, thank you so much for the work that you've done. I know it's been quite a process to put all this together and just want to let you know and acknowledge that you're amazing and I truly do appreciate you. And everybody understand that, you know, happiness might seem uh, counter being serious. 
But it's serious business in our world today when we mm -hmm. can really get sidetracked and there's a lot of stuff going on. But start to take your happiness more seriously yeah. because you deserve it. You deserve to be happy for all the time and effort and energy that you're putting into creating the life that you want. It's time to really take time to enjoy it. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much for tuning into the show. Have an amazing day and I'll talk with you soon. And make sure for more after the show, you head over to theshawnstevensonmodel.com. That's where you can find the show notes. And if you got any questions or comments, make sure to let me know. And please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and let everybody know that our show is awesome yeah. and you're loving it. Yeah. And I read all the comments, so please leave me a comment there. And take care, everybody. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help transform your life. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening.